0: Thank you. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be given this prime plot on the commission estate this afternoon. (laughs) Um, really, Really excited to be here. Thank you, Steve, for introducing me. So this talk, I have titled it transformative leadership in a racialized world. So I get to speak to you about race for a very long time this afternoon. And I'm hoping that there will be something for you to apply, whether you lead a church, or whether you lead in the workplace, or whether you lead in the community, or whether you lead at home, that that there will be something for you to think about and something for you to take away. Because you can be a transformative leader in any of those contexts. Now, I, because I'm going to de- ask you to be thinking about maybe your own lives and your own reflections, I, I will start with my own reflection on the first time I saw race. <clears throat> so this story is, is probably one of my earliest memories. I must have been about three and a half, certainly before my fourth birthday, and um, My father was a a pastor of a local Pentecostal church, so there were loads of white people coming and going from our home from probably when I was born, but I don't remember noticing that they were a different color. So this was really the first time I noticed another human being was a different color from mine. So it's the mid-80s. And it's somewhere in Western Kenya. So, at this point, I'm trying to explain to you the accent that you're trying to guess if you have not met me before. (laughs) It's somewhere in Western Kenya on the shores of Lake Victoria. Um, A Green Land Rover is driving through my village. It's one of the few vehicles that come here regularly, it's quite rural. And the children of my village are running and chasing this Land Rover and calling out to the driver. They call him Oliyech. So imagine a group of children running after a green Land Rover. Oliyech! Oliyech! And this is the first time I joined the truck chase. And... The Land Rover, it's a bit like that. It's exactly what it looked like. The, the Land Rover suddenly stops, and, 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 and the driver comes out, and um, he bends over, and the children are all around him, and he, he starts to distribute sweets, and he hugs them, and he, he greets them. And, and I'm pushing through the crowd to get to the front because I do not want to miss the action. So as I approach him, he's bent over, giving away sweets, and I can't see his face, and I'm really excited because I do want to get as close to him as possible. And then I get close to him, and I probably catch his attention with my crisp voice, the same voice I am assaulting you with right now. (laughs) And then he gets up, and he is not what I had expected to see. My three-and-a-half-year-old mind sees a really tall, large, hairy, very, very hairy white man. He, he, he has a beard all the way here. It's gray, and it's, his face is full of hair. His hand is very, very hairy. He's also quite large and quite tall, and he's wearing a robe. I've never seen anyone like that in my life, and I'm, I just screamed. <laughs> And then I started to run away, and so all the children are laughing at me. As you can imagine, my siblings are still teasing me about this even now. So I'm trying to run away from this man, and my cousins grab me, and he, he's, then he speaks in, in perfect mother tongue. He, he'd learned my language, it's very fluent. And he says, little girl, come back and get your sweets. I will not eat you. Not today. I'm like, that's exactly what you would say if you were going to eat me. So I am running for my life. (laughs) I didn't make it very far. My cousins grab me and bring me back to this terrifying man. So anyway, I give up in the end. I know I am going to be eaten. But there's one reassuring thought that I will die while eating sweets. So I... Then raise one hand, and I'm trembling, and and I'm like, yeah, just give it to me and then eat me. And and he presses two sweets into my hands. These sweets are called particles. Actually, I I I thought this might make a really nice title for a children's book. Any publishers here? We can talk later. A cracking title, The Elephant Man, The Little Girl, and Particle Sweets. That's what the sweets were called. So I've tasted loads of sweets trying to find this particle. I can't. But I got some um, waitress mints, which some people in the crowd are going to hand over to you so you can share this moment with me. They're not exactly the same sweet. The, the, The sweet I'm describing was more... Look, disc-shaped. it was white like this, very soft and crumbly. but you can t- take the waitress ones are fine. OK, So, <laughs> so, so back to the story. I, I raise my hand, and he puts these sweets in my hands, and then something unexpected happens. I feel the touch of his hand. His hand is soft and warm. Very unlike the men's hands in my village. The men vi- in my village were manual laborers, so their hands were quite rough. So I'm like, oh, strange. But then in that moment, the warmth of his hand, I look up to his face and I make out a smile. You know, his pink lips are hidden in his fully bearded face. And I can see he's smiling and I look into his eyes. And strangely, my fear just melts away. And I raise my hands, and he carries me, and I continue to eat my sweets, and I play with his beard, and I decide I like him. <laughs> now, what I have just described is seeing race. Orlietto was an Italian priest. He must have come to my village when he was in his 20s or maybe early 30s. When he came, he learned the local language, and he asked the locals to give him a local name. So they called him a leech because he was very huge. Leech is an elephant, so they called him the Elephant Man, because he was larger than anyone else in my village. He stayed there from that young age, barely ever going back to Rome, until his 90s. When he retired in his 70s, they asked him to go back to Rome. He said, No, I will stay and I will live here because this is my home and these are my people. So he died there in his 90s and was buried in a local parish by local people. In his time there, he touched many people's lives because they allowed him to. He was a foreigner. But despite the odd, terrified child who thought of him as cannibalistic, everyone else was quite lovely to him. His relationship with the locals wasn't perfect throughout, as happens when you live in community. There will be some differences. But he was much loved. And he was allowed to serve. And he was served. And people served alongside him. This story reminded me, the life that Father Oliech lived in my village, reminded me of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 to 34, where God tells his people, the Israelites, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born Love them as you love yourself. For you are foreigners in Egypt. I am your God. The Bible creates no room for treating people who are not born among us, or people who are different from us, any differently. So that's how I first see race, but I want to take the next few minutes to differentiate between race, the topic was racialization, so there's that massive word there. I want to differentiate between racialization, race, and racism. Racialization is a political process where we assign ethnic and racial differences to people, but with a political motive. I want you to consider the fact that I am a black person, how did I become a black person? How did you become a white or a brown person, or whichever color you were? It started with an innocent need to describe one with their physical attributes, in this case, skin color. But then someone else with a socio-political motive came in, someone with an economic motive came in, Someone with an evil motive came in, and they decided to stratify humanity using the excuse of skin color differences, so that one skin color was linked to higher status, power, and privilege, and another skin color systematically started to be linked with lower status, less power, less privilege. That is the process of racialization. The end goal then was that the more melanin you had, the more suitable you'd be deemed for kidnapping, for torture, for oppression, for slavery, for rape, for plundering of your resources, for the oppression of your nation, for the faith to be used to sustain such activities in your community. And for you to be told Jesus loves you very much, and therefore, we represent Jesus, and you shall do as we say. You know, Jomo Kenyatta, the the first president of independent Kenya, once said this. He said, when the missionaries arrived, the Africans had land, and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed, when we opened our eyes, they had the land, we had the Bible. I mean, as a Christian, you might say, they gave you something nice. I do not disagree, except I also wanted to consider what else happened in that exchange. The blood that was shed, was that all necessary? As a Christian, this can be a very difficult thing to process. So, the process of making the decision of whose skin color gets more power and privilege and whose skin color gets more oppression is called racialization. And as you can see, you can be racialized as black or white without you being racist. So, racism is an act that then results from it. You see that plundering, the stealing, the demeaning, the dishonoring, that is the racism. So if the socio-political ascribes you power and privilege and you decide you're going to use that power now to take over people's minds, take over their churches, you know, treat them with disrespect, dishonor their culture, speak flippantly about their ways of worship, manner of dressing, their accent or how they show up in spaces, now we are talking about racism. You see, when I met Father Oliich, he was... A white person, we call the Muzungu in Swahili. But that was just a reference to his physical attributes. When I was scared of him, I was scared of a bearded man. There was nothing political or historical embedded in my mind that viewed him as more superior or less superior. It was an observation. And black people will know this. When, when sometimes when children see you, they, they sneak behind you and they try to touch your hair or to rub your skin. And sometimes that's a genuine curiosity of, oh, who is this person? They look different. And it's often without sometimes the political and the historical. Now, when we do not teach about the biological, the melanin, the physical differences that we observe, then prejudice comes in and embeds itself in how we perceive those differences. So, what we know as racial prejudice is learned, and it can therefore be unlearned. It can therefore be transformed. And I see these kind of transformations all the time in my line of work. But if we leave them unchallenged, generations come and internalize these racialized patterns without questions. Patterns become norms, and norms become lenses through which we view the world and we view each other's experiences. These norms, they strip God's people of their God given dignity and humanity. And so let's see what the Bible says about transforming such patterns. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. To God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, I think most of you sitting in this room will know this scripture almost word for word. This transformative call of this scripture is about how we therefore renew our minds in Christ. I bring this message this afternoon because I truly believe that the Lord is turning toward our generation with compassion and healing. I hope to speak from a place of believing, a place of faith, and a place of hope that God is shining a light on areas of our lives, areas of our leadership, areas of our family, areas of our community, where Truth has eluded people for generations, including Christians. God is bringing light where things have been swept under the historical carpet. We have been too busy to listen, too afraid to acknowledge, too divided to unite through the Word of God and perhaps too deceived to understand. And by we... I mean, including me. Because I wasn't always ready to talk about patterns of race that impacted me, that impacted my family, that impacted my friends. I was also filled with fear and dread of the political. I know this because of the number of people I now work with as a coach. And when we start to trace their experiences, it's often things that were said in the playground. It's often things that teachers said. It's often things that somebody said in church. And it's accumulations of these things over time that has tripped somebody of the image of God that they bear. And, you know, it's, Experiences like that, over time, they they chip away at your sense of humanity. They impact how you show up in community, what you feel you can or cannot do. You try to avoid certain contexts just in case someone might say something to you. You just want to have a good day. You look around on days when you're really broken, when one more thing has been said or that's happened, and you wonder, how do my Christian friends not know We still live in a racist country. And then it's 2020. While COVID forced our lives to pause and shift in ways we never imagined possible, the world watched a horrendous footage of an African-American man being murdered very slowly, very publicly. And you know... It was quite traumatic to hear Christians saying, oh, you cannot say he was murdered. Well, that police of, ex-police of his has been charged with murder. But you know, the world could see murder. I was surprised that Christians couldn't see murder when they see one. What is going on? You know, those who watched that footage, there was no dignity in what we saw. There was no honor. There was no sober judgment, only horror. Yet we also know that those incidences are not uncommon. Oh, why? In majority Christian countries, why? You know, after this incident, though, many stopped to notice patterns of racism for the first time. I don't know whether that was just because we were all locked up at home and didn't have better things to do with our lives or whether we really, truly did care. I'll take the latter. You know, the UK church decided not to be left behind for once, thank God. And I imagine many of you, have, as a result, have since read books you never thought you'd read, had conversations you never thought you would have, maybe heard stories that made you angry. Why? Because God turned toward our generation with compassion and healing, as though speaking to us from Ephesians chapter five, verse 13 to 14. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Everything exposed. The light is Christ. Everything exposed by Christ becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so we awake. And so we awake. And we create spaces like this, where sermons like this can be preached. Praise God. And yet, though I stand here in faith and hope and joy, faith and hope that has been strengthened by the love and support I receive from the leaders here at Commission, and the leaders of my church, and my friends, and my church community, I'm also standing here a little bit terrified, and and I realized it wasn't just me, and I told a few people I was coming to speak about race, and there was a bit of, (laughs) ooh-ooh. Some people asked me, are you going to be okay? So there is still this sense, and I'm sure some of you, when you heard this afternoon was about race, you were like, (laughs) Ooh-ooh. This has made me understand that although we have come afar, although the Lord is doing a great work in our lives, we still have a long way to go. And I've had the lovely opportunity to visit some churches, including some of our commissioned churches, to listen to stories and to help these communities listen to each other in conversations around race, and I have been truly blessed by the willingness and the receptiveness with which these conversations are being received. As as part of my PhD, um, I have also had the joy of interviewing people in the workplace and different stories emerging of how transformative leadership is enabling progress around issues of race in the workplace. You know, I do hang on to these stories of hope, these stories of change, when things go wrong, like the recent killing of a 24-year-old black man, Chris Cabba, by a police officer in London just two weeks ago. I hang on to hope and these stories when I am talking to one more person who cannot explain but suspects their experiences in a certain context has to do with something about their skin color, Transformative leadership, let me define it now. It's an approach that causes change in individuals and social systems. Transformative leaders feel called to embrace leadership in a different way. Sometimes that way means they're going against the grain, the popular grain of culture. A transformative leader's immediate interest are to identify the needed change and then they create a powerful vision to guide the change through influencing and inspiration and execution. A transformative leader does not look at their leadership context as it is and just say it is what it is. No, they start by looking at it as it ought to be if social justice were present. Now, isn't this what Christian leadership should be about? Isn't this how Jesus led? Jesus led against the popular established grain of Jewish culture. He did not conform to it, but he transformed it. Jesus addressed head on the Jew Samaritan Gentile racist divides and dynamics of his time. He did not just shy away from it. He did not avoid it. And you know, there are many leaders of our time who are an encouragement in leading this way, and we should thank God for them. Transformative leaders feel the call to expand their critical awareness, to expand their reflections. They analyze history and culture and think about what has my history and culture taught me about someone else, and what has my history and culture not taught me? About someone else. They don't shy away from activism and action against injustices of which they become aware. So, action is really at the forefront of how they lead. They know when it's no longer okay to conform to the patterns of the ongoing issues of the day, but to work towards transformative justice. Surely, this is not something I should be selling to you. This is something that should be the call of every Christian in this room. You know, these transformative leaders they're not unicorns. They're everyday people like you and I. It's a decision that you make about how you're going to lead. And I just want to ask you at this point, how are you leading today, you know, in anticipation of the day of the Lord? Christ will bring all nations under Himself in perfect justice. How are you leading today in anticipation of that day? We are not called to reflect the world's value systems, but to radically confront and transform them. There are many examples of such throughout history. Brethren, we need the numbers to turn the tide. When I work with leaders embarking on an anti-racism journey, I ask them to reflect on a few questions because I do not want leaders telling me, oh, I I want to do this in my church. No, I want to know they're really ready. So I ask them, you need to go away and think about why this? Why race? Why now? Why you? Why your church or your organization? And when I find a leader is not clear about this, I do not think they're ready. We do not get started. But I also get some really amazingly transformative reflections in response. I'll read a few for you. you know, people have said, somebody has said to me, you know, racism, when you see it, you suddenly realize this is a church leader. It's an anti-gospel issue, and you can't unsee it. And so you need to act. Another leader wrote to me, I finally see that none of us are outside the system that is contributing to this, and it impacts my life. It impacts my church. It impacts society at large. I must have a biblical worldview on this issue and then leave that out. And he says, there are other issues of our time, and if we do not start with this, we will find it difficult to address those other issues too. One more One leader said, if the church does not lead on this issue, someone else will. If Christians don't lead on this issue, someone else will. Why? Because physicists have told us that nature hates vacuum. If you try to create a vacuum somewhere, nature will try to fill it. So if we are creating a vacuum on our knowledge of these patterns, of course the world is going to step in to fill it with their own knowledge, and that world might be this lovely lady called Caroline Baker, who's written this book—a really confrontational title. You know, I never thought that um, evangelical, <laughs> you know, faith is is a wound. This is a really confrontational way to frame this. Terms such as fascism are coming into discourse in academic spaces and, you know, your children going off to universities will have these books in their reading lists and they might then suddenly realize there's an evangelical wound somewhere. Who's creating this wound? In what ways can we lead in a way that is transforming? Because these are compilations of stories of people who've been hurt and disappointed by evangelical Christians. I have not read this book, actually. It's in my reading list, so I will read. But I've followed some of these seminars following up to the launch of the book and after. You know, I was surprised, actually. In one of, of, of of the interviews, Caroline Baker says this. I think the person of Jesus Christ is exceptional. I just wish the Christians followed what he says. I'm like, I'm afraid I agree with you. <laughs> you know, what we do or do not do to confront issues such as racism in our time and the prejudices that we harbor and protect will drive the next generation away from faith. We're going to struggle to defend the gospel. We're going to struggle. Think about Tim's message this morning. We are going to struggle to defend the legacy of the gospel because we are not open to being challenged on things we have decided not to learn. Today's continuing inequalities in education, housing, employment, wealth, representation in leadership positions are rooted in our country's shameful history of slavery and systemic racism. And although we cannot go back and change history, we can learn from it. The glory of our country, the glory of the British culture, the glory of our race... The glory of our church is not undermined by this message. It can be strengthened by it. If we truly understand where we have come from as a people, as a nation, as a people of God, then we can start the work of transformation. You can ask yourself, what did we really learn from Holocaust Germany? that we put into practice today in how we relate with other cultures. What did we really learn from apartheid South Africa? How have we addressed the legacy that lingers between the anti-Irish sentiments across generations? What did we learn from our nation about the need to dominate and oppress other nations instead of going out there to love them? We can still see the legacy of these patterns, perhaps, in the ongoing war in Ukraine, because the world did not learn how to go out there and love someone. The histories and patterns the Western world would not confront might come back to haunt us in our own doorsteps. To navigate the present, we must heed lessons from history. This should make sense to you as a Christian, Because this book that we live by is a compilation of history. Let's we forget. Let's we forget that we're not the first generation of Christian churches who have grappled with racism, but we can choose to be the generation that does not sweep it under the carpet. The apostles did not sweep racism of their time under the carpet. We see it all over the gospels. Acts 10, 34 to 36. You see this over and over. Then Peter began to speak. And listen how he starts. I now realize what that does mean. You know, before I, I really didn't get it, but there's a moment of transformation. And then I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accept from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. See, Peter didn't always know this. We didn't always know this, but a moment comes and we receive the transforming power of God and suddenly we now realize Galatians 3.28, there is neither a Jew nor a Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This would not have been said if these cultures had no patterns of sexism and racism and embedded all manners of isms. These scriptures are written because this generation too are struggling. The apostles do not shy away. They confront it. They teach it. They teach it from the pulpit. Because God turned towards their generation with the hope to heal racial division just like he has turned towards our generation. The question is what we're going to do with the opportunities that we have been given. So I'll ask you that question again. How are you leading today in anticipation of the day of the Lord? You know, Ben Lindsay, the author of that book that most of you have now read, Let's Talk About Race, (laughs) he says, I'm not really interested in the debate about racism and whether it exists. Well, I've gone into that debate quite in detail. I shouldn't have. (laughs) From the complicity of the church in the transatlantic trade, to the lack of welcome of the Windrush generation experienced in UK churches, to the lack of black and brown representation in leadership in today's church institutions, the evidence is clear. But I'm not interested in that. I am interested in how we move forward. And once again, I say, me too. So how do we move forward? We can only move forward... You know, there's many things we could do, but only the things we do while embedded and rooted in the power of Christ, in the transforming power of Christ will truly count. I do believe there are all sorts of people out there trying to do transformative justice work. I think that work is Christian work and should be done by us, so how could we do that? I'm going to pick some examples from the life and work of Jesus. Four examples. The first thing, a transformative leader crosses the boundary to meet the other. Turn with me to the book of John, chapter 4, the Gospel of John. This is the story where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And it says, so he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Why? Because something lives there that the Jewish people do not want to go through. So Jesus has to go through it. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. So he gets some of the Jewish men out the way. You know, sometimes to do transformative work, you got to get some folks out the way. <laughs> then the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. there. A well-described, embedded pattern of racism, known by both sides. Nobody wants to change it. We leave it as it is. But Jesus is here to change it. Bible commentators say, after the northern kingdom of Israel, which had its capital in Samaria, was taken over by the Assyrians, some Jewish people remained behind. Most of them then went to the southern kingdom. So those who remained behind, some foreigners were brought in. There were intermarriages between the Jews and these foreigners. And so the Samaritans were descendants, the mixed race descendants of of, of these, these intermarriages. And the Jewish people mainly saw them as impure. So that racism continued over time. Now, Jesus is deliberate there. He does not conform to the Jewish racism of his time. He crosses the boundary straight into Samaritan territory. He meets not one of the Samaritans who have lived with the Jews and therefore understands their ways and, you know, they're practically one of us. No, that's not what Jesus is going to meet. He meets a woman. He meets a woman. One that is ostracized and is isolated. I'd encourage you to go away and read this chapter, actually. I find it fascinating and one that I always feel is underpreached because we often ignore the glaring dynamics of gender and race in this piece of scripture. When you read this story, pay attention to how Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, an esteemed Jewish rabbi, and a Jewish man, how he conducts this meeting. Give us a tip or two on how to work across cultures. And across gender divides. Jesus recognizes that in this context, he is the one who's been socio-politically placed on a status. He is a privileged Jewish man. And so when he is talking to the woman, if you go and read that scripture, you will see it. He has a bit of compassion for her. He does not seek to dominate her. In fact, she's trying, if you read that scripture, she's trying to put him in his place. She's quite sharp and throws quite a few, but Jesus knows why he's there, but he also knows how he's been constructed by that culture, his status of power, and he handles it really well. A transformative leader crosses the boundaries, meets the other. And I want you to consider, what is the the Samaria of your day? What is your Samaria? Where do you need to cross into? Who do you need to cross over to? At work, at church, in your neighborhood, in your community, or in your day-to-day life? Which brings me to the second point. A transformative leader challenges embedded patterns of, and I'm going to talk about two patterns. The first pattern is this pattern of less than. Marginalized identities can often leave with a pattern of, I am less than. A chipped away image of God that then carries on in the life of a person. In the encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus takes the time, he creates the safe space and the room to not just talk to this woman, but to also listen to her. He is challenging her internalized sense of inferiority. He is communicating to her, you are worthy you are worthy of a man's time you are worthy of a jewish man's time you are not less than you are worthy of god's time you are worthy of salvation just like anybody else you are worthy to serve me you are worthy please give me water I want you to go down history as one of the women who gave water to the living water himself, Jesus Christ. You have a special place in my kingdom. You are not less than. No matter what you have been made to think and no matter what you think, you are not less than. And verse 28 of that scripture says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? That moment of revelation. And then listen, verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way towards him. She not just points the few people to Jesus. She takes a whole town with her. What a beautiful story. Brethren, this is what happens in the face of transformation. When you cross the boundary, when Jesus crosses the boundary with you into that Samaria, a whole town is led to Jesus. That scared hiding, ashamed woman is now the most effective evangelist. She takes the town. Without crossing these boundaries, there are people who are ready to take cities, take towns, and take the globes. They will not be released until we confront these issues in our churches, in our communities, in our society. So with you, Will you walk with someone in Christ like humility and gentleness? The kind of gentleness that breaks the shell that has kept someone hidden, that kept the glory of God hidden, so that the cities can break free and be freed to Jesus. Which brings me to my third point. Transformative leaders also challenge embedded patterns of Morvan. You know, Jesus was committed to transforming racist patterns in his time, these patterns between Jews and Samaritans. In Luke chapter 10, we find another story that illustrates the commandment of love that Jesus gave us, the famous Good Samaritan. You know, Jesus really believes Samaritan lives matter. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus challenges Jewish superiority. He chooses characters in this story so carefully a Jewish story would have never had a Samaritan hero. Jesus knows this racist person. He's not going to leave it as it is. He does not conform to it. He confronts it. He transforms it. In Luke chapter 10, it says in verse 30, in reply Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went, and, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, this is a Jewish icon, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed and went to the other side. So did the Levite, another Jewish icon, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put... The man on his donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. This story was going to be challenging for a racist Jew. Can you imagine a Samaritan being compassionate, being kind, being wealthy, all my life, I have been taught about the Samaritan savages. They stole from my brother when I was 15. I can hear the Jews saying, I can hear the Jew recalling all examples of when Samaritans have done strange things in the world as though Jewish people do not. These Samaritans who speak in strange Samaritan accents, I can barely understand. I think Jesus would have spoken to them from Romans 12, 3, which we read earlier. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, Jewish people. But rather think of yourself in sober judgment, in in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each and every one of you. And this is important to anyone who wants to live out there calling as a transformative leader. What kind of stories do you tell? Do you tell stories that reinforce stereotypes of gender and race? Or do you choose to tell stories that are honoring and empowering to people who have been historically marginalized? You've got the platform, you've, if you're given a platform and you're given a microphone, you've got to choose the stories that you tell. Jesus chose his stories carefully. He did not waste these moments. He used these moments to transform, and we can do that. If God is sending somebody your way who is not the usual, I mean, you can choose to embrace that and see what God can do with that person's life, or you can continue to go with the tested and tried Jewish way and transformation will not happen, which brings me to my final point as I land. The touch of a transformative leader can heal a racialized world. You remember the story I started with? What was it that melted my fear away? It was the touch, the warm touch of Father Oliad's hand. And without even spiritualizing this, this area of touch is massive. When there's hidden prejudice, studies have shown that people will distance themselves physically from others. There will be less eye contact, handshakes are cold and floppy. Where we find we have more in common with people, we naturally greet them better. We're more likely to look them in the face. When we walk, we want to walk close to them. Our body language can send signals of prejudice that we don't even know we have, and people know. People feel these things. And on the Good Samaritan story, Jesus portrays the power of touch, a portrayal of himself, a loving Savior who did not walk past an undeserving, wounded, and bleeding world, a racist world. He doesn't walk past our generation either. Jesus stops, he stopped by, he touched the world with his own hands by bandaging our sinful wounds and pouring out on us the oil of his spirit and the wine of his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. By his touch, he gladly takes us by his side and seats us on the right hand of the Father. He has paid the price. For our sins and his blood is sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind through eternity. Our Creator God declared all human beings created equal in His image. In Genesis 1:27, he says, "So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. Do not chip away from that which God created and meant to be whole. We recognize the image of God more fully in others when we allow Jesus to make us new and restore his image more fully in us. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen, he says, Therefore, if in, anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This comes right after Paul has just proclaimed. So from now on... We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Instead, we enter a transformed community. We touch each other with the love of Christ. And we live and we lead in anticipation of the day of the Lord. And now let me describe that day to you. According to the vision given John in the island of Patmos in Revelation 7:9. as I come to finish. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from every town, from every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Praise God. I'll just leave you with this question once again if that is the day of the Lord how are you leading right now in anticipation of that day thank you